Coming up next on Upstate's HealthLink on Air, Syracuse University head football coach Dino Babers and Upstate University Hospital CEO Dr. Robert Corona talk about teamwork and resiliency. If the people don't trust you, they won't they won't work and they won't relax enough for the for their true inner self to come out. An assistant professor describes what ethics has to do with health policy. Rather than looking at clinical encounters, I look at things like Medicaid policy or um, how the state or federal government decides to give resources to different populations. And a medical student tells about the research on a rare neurological condition that took him to the Dominican Republic. From falling too much, their, their teeth have broken, they, their tongue is protruding out, they're rigid, and, and it's, it's very disheartening. All that, plus a selection from The Healing Muse, right after the news. This is Upstate Medical University's HealthLink on Air, your chance to explore health, science, and medicine with the experts from Central New York's only academic medical center. I'm your host, Amber Smith. Today, we'll explore the ethics of public health policy. Then, we'll hear how a medical student traveled to the Dominican Republic as part of a research project on a rare neurological condition. But first, we'll listen to a conversation about teamwork and resiliency between Syracuse University head football coach Dino Babers and Upstate University Hospital CEO Dr. Robert Corona. From Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York, I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. With me in the studio today to talk about teamwork and resilience are Syracuse University head football coach Dino Babers and Upstate University Hospital CEO Dr. Robert Corona. Thank you both for being here. Thank you. Thank you. So social scientists study team building and teamwork, but a lot of what each of you do day in and day out is building a team of people who can work together, Coach Babers with uh, athletes and coaches, and Dr. Crona with doctors, nurses, other members of the healthcare team. So I'd like to explore the similarities and differences with each of your approaches, because I think listeners can kind of learn from both of you. So coach, each season, you're faced with a partially new group of players coming in. How do you get everyone to work on the same page? You know, the first thing is we have a very, very simple rules and uh, I, won't, I won't bore you with them, but we basically have three family rules. And if you can handle those three family rules, then you have a chance. You have a chance to be able to, to be embraced within the family and to be able to function with the family. And we talk about how important our surname is uh, so important that the surname that your father gave you, that you make sure that you don't disrespect that surname or you make that surname better than what, better than the way he gave it to you, the better than the way you found it. And then with that surname, we talk about our family and our football team, which is Syracuse University. And you need to also, when you put on that jersey, you need to understand that that's also part of your surname and that you want it to be better than than the way we gave it to you. And you want to do a better job than the person in front of you. So we're always striving to be the best that we can be and to never settle. And then Dr. Corona, it's almost like you've got a bunch of teams that are part of a bigger team. Um, what's your strategy to get everyone thinking the same? I'd like to say that I'm as good as the coach. Um, my dad, I, I mentioned earlier today that my dad was a coach and I, I watched a similar thing. So I, I feel like running a hospital is a lot like being a coach. Um, it's it's a wonderful position. It's a humbling position. But one of the things we do is we talk about what's your pulse when you come into work. And we use the acronym PULSE to uh, have the individuals understand what our valued behaviors are. And our valued behaviors encompass people for the P. Sure. Uh, coach was telling me about trust. We use you for understanding as well. And we communicate with the intent to understand one another. And then L, I first said that that was for leadership because everybody's a leader at every level. But more recently, I've, I've uh, positioned it as loyalty, loyalty to the institution. And then S, um, I started out with safety, but everybody pretty much assumes that the hospital's a safe place. So I've changed that now to talk about sustainability, that we have a responsibility to be sustainable for our environment um, so that the next generation inherits a better world than we have now. And the last thing is E is for excellence or exceptionalism, that 
when somebody comes to our institution, they expect the best care in the world, and we should strive for that constantly. Outstanding. Do you think that building and maintaining a team requires establishing a relationship of trust? How important is that? You know, if, if I think that's that's the key that you have to. If the people don't trust you, they won't they won't work, and they won't they won't relax enough for the for their true inner self to come out. So I think there's no doubt that trust is important. The word that we like to use in in our family is faith, belief without evidence. That if you just give us if you have a little faith in what we're trying to present to you in our family or in our company, if, if you move it to a, a business aspect, that it's going to all work out. And what we need you to do right now is is to, to listen, fall in line, and have some faith that it's going to be the way that we envision it if you just work with us on it. And everyone on, that's on the team sort of has to believe in that. They have to, to believe it. in it, yes. And you, Dr. Crona, agree? Yeah, the, you know, we, we are a system, a team, and if we don't have trust uh, amongst everybody, uh, then we break down. Because if the surgeon doesn't trust the uh, surgical tech or the nurse doesn't trust the surgeon or the surgeon doesn't trust the lab or they don't trust the radiologist reading the images, the whole system falls apart. So we have to have trust. And it's earned. You have to earn people's trust but um, you have to have it or the, the system fails. Now, what happens to individual identity on a team? Is there room for personalities? Is there room for differences of opinion on a team that functions well? What we say is when we're in a room as a team, we can disagree with one another. We can have different personalities. And once again, I, I'm a, you know, a, a wannabe coach. But I say, look, we can have dissenting opinions. When we walk out of this room, game face on, and we're all together, and you can't break us down. Game face. That probably resonates with you. It does. I, I wanted you to answer that one first because <laughs> I wanted to rotate. But the thing I love about it is you have, in our business, we have our last names on the back, but we have this, the school's name on the front. And we want, I've got 105 stepsons with different, with different personalities, and that's what I love about the job. I've got four daughters and neither, none of them are the same. They're <laughs> all different. Even though they ate the same Cheerios, the same Corn Flakes, the same uh, uh, <laughs> any cereal that you choose, Frosted Flakes, they're, <laughs> they're totally different. And that's the exciting part about it is, is having all those different personalities. That doesn't make us weaker. That makes us stronger. And just like uh, uh, Dr. Corona said, our, our big thing is we like to say that let's agree to disagree and we want to have interaction and we want to have input and it's important to listen to the input and not hear the input. And now after everybody's gotten that off their chest, wh whoever wants to speak, feel free that now when we walk outside the door, we're a team and there's no I in it. I know there's an M and an E, but there's no I and we're all on the same page. And we need to be moving in the same direction. So Dr. Corona is a neuropathologist, and I wanted to ask if there's something inside our brains that sets us up to either be or not be team players. Is, is there any like pathology that like sends someone off from birth into one direction or the other? So we've achieved as a species because of our ability to act as a team. Um, we're not the fastest animals. We're not necessarily... Well, I guess maybe we may argue that we're the smartest, but some people may debate that. Um, but we do work best as a team. And um, we, we have a, a wiring in our brain and we have neurotransmitters in our brain that want us to operate as a team. And uh, there's a reward system that's set up when uh, we operate as a team. Some people may even call them our tribal mentality, but that gives us a distinct advantage that we can cooperate with one another to achieve pretty remarkable things. So we're sort of wired to be team we, players. We are wired. We have a uh, coach talked about um, grit and perseverance. Um, there's a real neurotransmitter in our brain that uh, comes out when we practice this perseverance. It's called dopamine. Um, people may have heard of it from Parkinson's uh, uh, 
disease. People that are deficient in dopamine, it's interesting, there was a study where they're motivated uh, Parkinson's patients, and all of a sudden they get a, a burst of dopamine in their Parkinsonism improves. So um, there's some sophisticated wiring to have us be team players and cooperate and care for one another. Well, what's your philosophy about managing conflict within a team? Do you, is a team a democratic institution or do you see it as authoritarian? It's a democratic society until it's time not to be a democratic society. And uh, again, it's really important to treat it like a family. When you're at the dinner, the family dinner table, everyone's allowed to speak, but if mom and dad's talking, you need to listen. And if dad's talking, then mom needs to respect dad and dad needs to respect mom, even though the children can say basically what they want to say as long as it's not out of line. When it comes into our football family, we're very interactive. The young men are allowed to say whatever they like to say. But with my military background and me being a military kid, the thing that I, I always caution them is I said, say what you mean and mean what you say because I'm listening to you. And you just can't say something and, and then two days later wonder, well, what happened? Well, you remember when you said, well, I didn't mean, well, I was listening to you and I took it as gospel. And I, and I tell them constantly that words trigger pictures words trigger pictures so me say what you mean mean what you say and then pick your words wisely and it's the last part of that is timing does matter there's some times that are better to say something than other times and you need to get a feel for that if you're going to be someone that can provide for your family and be able to survive uh, in the world outside of our family so we do let them know that timing's important. And if they can put those three things together, uh, not only will they be effective inside of our family, but they'll be an effective in life as well. You're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, and I'm talking with Syracuse University head football coach Dino Babers and Upstate University Hospital CEO, Dr. Robert Corona. We've been talking about team building and the similarities between sports teams and healthcare teams. And now I want to shift to talk a little bit about resilience. Um, in terms of being able to bounce back from adversity, I want to ask each of you how you go about instilling this trait in the people that you work with. And Coach, you work with young adults who are still somewhat impressionable. And so do you see your task sort of as confidence building or, or something more in terms of building resilience? First of all, I think some of them have it in them, some more than others. And what I've got to do is I've got to find a way to weigh it. I have to find a way to measure it. Because I need, I need to make sure that everybody's cup is pretty close to full. Because if they don't have it, it's going to be hard for them to stay with the rest of the group. I almost look at it like a wolf pack. And, we're, and you're a wolf pack. You're only as good as the wolf next to you. But you've got to be able to travel great distances for us to be able to do the things that we need to do to feed each other. And we, we're constantly building these guys up with strength and nutrition and all these other things. But to get back to the question, they have to have that it that that sometimes it's hard medically to to figure out what it is. Or so as some people would say, they have to have heart. They have to have that that non quit attitude in them or when they get on something, they just won't quit. And I really believe a lot of that has to do with as crazy as it sounds, winning and losing some people accept losing as a game of chance and it happens and then other people lose and they just can't yes they lost and they and they walked out but it hurts so bad that they never want that feeling again and I've been fortunate to win quite a bit in the business that I'm in and I do remember some of the wins but I can guarantee you I, re I remember almost all of the losses and I think to be a not a bad loser, but a a sore, I won't forget loser, I think really helps you in being a consistent winner. And the last thing I'll say is, and it's really big in our family that you need to, we talk about being consistently good, not occasionally great. Someone that we can wind our clock by day in and day out. 
you're going to be there for us. And I think that ties in with that wolf pack mentality. And then Dr. Corona, in, in this medical setting, um, you've got high levels of expertise and the potential or guaranteed high stress situation. How do you choose people who are going to be able to thrive in that sort of setting? I define uh, resilience as the, the ability to, to bounce back because we're inevitably going to fail. We're in an imperfect science and medicine, and it's very important that, you know, uh, a neurosurgeon or a heart surgeon that tried their best to save a life, you know, sometimes nature wins and uh, you can't defy nature. It's, it's time. And if, if our surgeons or our uh, internal medicine or pediatricians have uh, what they would perceive as a failure, um, if they go into a depression and they can't take care of patients moving forward, uh, they're not serving the, the public like they should. So it's very important to have that ability to bounce back because we will fail and uh, we try not to. We try our best. And I think most patients understand that. Well, let me ask you another brain question. Is resiliency all emotional or is there physical aspects of it too, or, or is it both? There's a principle of the brain called neuroplasticity. And the brain can actually model itself to be resilient. So if you uh, do things that support that uh, transition of the brain to be tougher, um, it actually changes both physically and neurochemically. And I think that's probably what happens to your football team as they evolve through the season. They're starting to build that grit and that stick to itness, and um, and that's how the uh, how the brain will continue to operate. And you have to keep nourishing that because if you don't, you start to lose those neurotransmitters, and then the brain will regress back, and um, that often leads to sometimes depression. Um, because you're not, you know, you talk about how physical activity improves your mental health. It's because you're creating these neural connections in these neurotransmitters, the dopamine I was talking about, that comes from hard physical activity. And that supports the mental health that has to come from building a team. And coach, you've got all kinds of physical activity with your guys, right? Yes, ma'am. So. <laughs> I've got I've got a great a great excuse to give them more now based <laughs> off of the doctor. <laughs> Just don't said. when you're making them sprint, don't tell them I said so. You know, it's 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 amazing what the body can do, and I think the the key the key is, and I'm I'm talking about my young men on the football team right now, is that you you never want to um, neglect. Uh, what they're capable of doing, but you, you, you don't want to harm them, but you've got to show them that they can do more. And it makes me think about, there was a commercial on TV and it used to, and I can't remember, this guy was in a weight room and he was lifting a weight and he was saying more, more. And I think it was an insurance <laughs> Geico, commercial. Yeah, it was a Geico. It was a Geico commercial. And then the, you see his arm getting bigger and bigger and like more and more. And now I'm thinking about the dope of thing and I'm going, yeah, you know, we've got to find a way to get some more of that stuff. But I, I think it really comes down to competition and, and letting people succeed and fail, succeed and fail, and pushing them to a new limit, but never pushing so far to where they can injure themselves. And you really, it really takes a master craftsman to be sitting back and watch and to make sure that you're moving your people in the right direction, but you're never giving them uh, a hurdle that's too big that they, can, that they cannot bound. It has to be achievable or it doesn't have the right effect. Well, this has been a very interesting conversation, and I want to thank you both for being here. SU head football coach Dino Babers and Upstate University Hospital CEO Dr. Robert Corona. This has been Amber Smith for Upstate's HealthLink on Air. Coming up next, ethics and public health policy. You're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on Air.
From Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York, I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. Today I'm going to talk about some healthcare policies that have been in the news recently with someone who focuses on the ethics of these policies. With me in the HealthLink on Air studio is Rachel Faby, an assistant professor in bioethics and public health and preventive medicine at Upstate. Thank you for being here. Thanks for having me. Well, you joined the Upstate faculty last summer with a specialization in the ethics of health policy, so it makes sense that you'd have a joint appointment in both bioethics and public health and preventive medicine. Can you explain what the ethics of health policy is and how you were drawn to this field? Yeah, so so bioethics writ large is the ethics of health and science. So frequently when people think about bioethics, they think of things like cloning or the ethics of informed consent in the in the clinical setting. I focus on the ethics of health policy more broadly. So rather than looking at clinical encounters, I look at things like Medicaid policy or um, how the state or federal government decides to give resources to different populations. Um, and I, as you mentioned, I focus specifically on um, non-citizens, so how immigrants uh, do or don't receive health care. And refugees. And, and re- refugees other. as a category of immigrants, yep. So you work at an academic medical center. Are there health policy ethicists working like in government or do they, I mean, where else do you, does this profession, you know, have an influence? So you're right that at Upstate, there aren't a whole lot of people who work on the ethics of health policy. It's a a medical center. We have a lot of clinical ethicists, uh, some research ethicists, you know, research on human subjects, but it's not a big thing here. But yeah, there's, you know, there are other bioethics centers around the country that have people who work on health policy. Um, Johns Hopkins and Baylor come to mind as two that are sort of leading the way. But also, you know, the NIH, the National Institutes of Health, has a bioethics department. um, And there you have people who work sort of across the spectrum of bioethics. It's, It's a really interesting place. And that's what they focus on entirely. I wouldn't say entirely. They work. There are people who work on research ethics. There, you know, all all sorts of bioethics happens at NIH. But I think that that's you know sort of one um, area where you can also find people working on policy issues. So your research focuses on access to healthcare for non-citizens, which includes undocumented immigrants, refugees. In this charged political climate, some people in government believe immigrants and refugees shouldn't be here, let alone you know needing healthcare. So how do you ensure? that ethics is part of the discussion without taking sides. That's really hard. Um, you know, I, I don't know that it's my job as a bioethicist not to take sides. That's sort of a debate in the bioethics community. You, you know, should we be engaged in advocacy or activism? And is that an appropriate role for an academic bioethicist? Um, but, you know, in my own work, I I do work on the access of healthcare specifically for undocumented immigrants. I think it's an interesting question whether their immigration status is relevant to whether they should get healthcare. Um, in bioethics, we might say morally relevant. Um, and there are a number of moral and political theorists uh, out there who would argue that immigration status is morally irrelevant. And what matters is that people live in our communities, they're our neighbors, they're our friends, they're our co-workers, they go to church with us, those sorts of things. And that's what's morally relevant is those social connections. Um, So when we're giving out public resources to people, it should be on the basis of these important social connections, rather than on, you know, sort of the arbitrary question of where you were born. I know that's not uh, an argument that's accepted by everyone, but that's sort of, um, I'm convinced by it. I find that to be a very convincing moral argument for how we should be giving out public goods. See, I think of ethics as the study of, um, I don't know, right and wrong, good and bad, you know, black and white, but you've got people on both sides of this issue, some that think, you know, America should help people in need, and some that think America should just take care of its own. But so do ethicists, do they look for a middle ground, or do they look to tell us which belief is right and which one is wrong? I mean, there are a number of, of schools of thought on that as well. In my own work, I'm a, an empirical bioethicist, which means I don't do a whole lot of theorizing. I do I collect data, and I use that data to inform my arguments, right? So I might interview someone about the experience of providing care to an undocumented immigrant under policy constraints that limit what they can provide to them, mm-hmm. um, which is actually what I did in my most recent project. I, I interviewed providers who see pregnant undocumented immigrants. 
um, in different states that have different levels of generosity in their in their benefits that they provide to these women. And, you know, for a, a number of providers, what I heard again and again is, I am a nurse, I'm a doctor, it is my job to provide care to people who need it, and their immigration status doesn't matter because my professional calling is to help people. And when I encounter these policies that restrict what I can do for someone, you know, that tension is really distressing to me as a provider. I want to give the best care I can. And when this policy says, well, you can you can do an ultrasound and you can provide care to the baby, but you can't help with the mom's morning sickness because of, you know, policy restrictions, that's really hard for people who, you know, want to treat all of their patients the same. And that sort of comes back to that question of whether immigration status is morally relevant when we're providing health care. Let's talk about the public charge rule, because that's something else that you've spent some time looking into. Can you describe what that is? Sure. So the public charge rule is a uh, Department of Homeland Security policy. It's uh, it's DHS, where um, when they're determining whether someone can become a, a legal permanent resident, so someone who is an immigrant who does not yet have a green card, uh, currently when they're making that determination, they ask whether that person is likely to become a, a public charge, which means primarily dependent on the government for subsistence. Um, and when they do that calculation as it is now, what they're looking at are things like, do you have you received cash benefits, so um, temporary assistance for needy families, and have you received um, long-term care at government expense? And those are the only two things they consider when they're making a public charge determination. And if you've received those things, they can determine that you're likely to become a public charge and deny you a green card. So um, that's sort of the backdrop against which this proposed change has, has come down from DHS. They're proposing to change what they consider when they're making this determination. So in addition to cash benefits and long-term care, they're going to look at what the, and these are legal immigrants. I should, I should mention these are not undocumented immigrants. We're talking about people who are here legally but do not have a green card yet. Um, now they're going to look at both you know, the, the cash assistance and the long-term care, but also potentially the use of Medicaid, the use of Medicare, the use of uh, Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program or SNAP benefits, that's food stamps. Um, they're potentially going to look at whether uh, their children have used the Children's Health Insurance Program. So there are a bunch of new programs that people are eligible for. They're allowed to use these programs under U.S. policy. They're going to look at, maybe, if this rule becomes official, um, whether someone has used these programs in making that public charge determination and could potentially deny someone a green card if they've used those programs. Um, and the concern in the public health community is that if we, um, if this rule becomes official, right now it's just in a, in a proposed status, but if they finalize this rule, a number of people who are eligible for these programs are going to disenroll and they're going to stop getting Medicaid. They're going to stop using food stamps um, that they need to stay healthy and they, they need to keep their families fed. Uh, and that's going to really harm the public's health, not only because it's, you know, it's bad for the immigrants themselves to withdraw from these programs and no longer have access to these benefits, but also because if they become sicker and less productive, that's bad for everyone. Um, you know, illness is contagious and, and um, a lack of economic productivity hurts everyone. And so you can, you can make both arguments, right? That it's, we should provide these benefits because people need them and that's the right thing to do. But you can also make these more practical arguments about it's, it's also bad for citizens if people are withdrawing from these programs that they need. You're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, and I'm talking with Rachel Faby, an assistant professor in bioethics and public health and preventive medicine at Upstate. So I want to ask you about undocumented immigrants in a paper that you wrote with a colleague in the New England Journal of Medicine in November 2016. Um, you, you were writing about the proportion of undocumented immigrants in the U.S. who lacked health insurance. It was around 40% back then. Do you know what the number is today? I don't. Uh, I haven't seen the most recent estimates on that. But if I had to guess, I would assume that there are probably more undocumented immigrants who are uninsured now than in 2016 um, because of this, this phenomenon known in the literature as the chilling effect, um, which is where increased immigration enforcement causes people out of fear to sort of withdraw from public to to try to protect themselves. So even people who are undocumented who previously had private insurance uh, might be dropping that coverage for fear that information about them could be used to, to find them and, and then subsequently deport them. 
So I know you've done work um, dealing with refugees, asylum seekers. Can you explain sort of the different categories of people who want to come to this country? Yeah, so we have sort of a broader umbrella category of humanitarian immigrants, and that's people who are um, afraid to be in their country of origin uh, because of fear of persecution or violence uh, on the basis of race or religion or nationality or, or any of these things. So a refugee is someone who has left their country of origin. They're now in a second country, and they want to come to a third country. So maybe they've left Syria, now they're in Lebanon, and they'd like to come to the U.S. or they'd like to go to Germany. And the U.N. has granted them official refugee status because they've evaluated their claims and said, yes, you have a credible fear of being in your home country. Um, and so the U.S. each year sets the number of refugees that we'll be admitting, which means you know we'll, we'll screen them. It's usually a two-year process to get through all of the levels of screening to become a refugee. Does it just go by number of refugees or does it go by number from each country? Uh, it depends. So every year the number is set differently. Um, recently, there's been a shift in the way that number is determined. It used to be determined um, as sort of a, uh, a process between the State Department and the refugee resettlement agencies in consultation with Congress um, under the current president. That that process has kind of changed. And now the Domestic Policy Council within the White House is determining how many refugees we should be admitting and kind of telling the State Department how many refugees we should be admitting. Um, and Congress is kind of expected to rubber stamp that rather than really consult. Uh, so we've seen the number of refugees admitted decline recently under President Obama. It was averaging 75, 80,000 people a year. In his last year, he actually tried to increase that to 110,000 people because of the Syrian refugee crisis. Um, and that was for, he initially set that number for 2017. Uh, he set it in October 2016. So then when President Trump came in, he took that number down by half. It went from 110,000 to about 50, 55,000. Uh, the following year, they set it to 40,000. And this year, they're proposing, I think, 30,000. So that, that number has declined by over uh, uh, by a significant margin in the last couple of years. Well, asylum seekers have been in the news lately. We've learned about children being separated from their parents at the border which is obviously an emotional situation. Is there a role for health policy in what's happening at the borders? Yeah. So there's, um, you know, it, just to clarify quickly on the distinction between refugees and asylum seekers. So refugees are in that second country trying to get to a third. To be an asylum seeker, you have those same fears of persecution and violence, but you're at the U.S. border or you're already within the U.S. border and you're trying to seek the protection of the United States. So a lot of the women and children that we saw separated last summer were asylum seekers. They were running from gangs and violence in their home countries and trying to be protected in the US. Um, and I think there are a number of sort of health questions there. Um, a lot has been written about sort of the long-term mental health effects of separating children from their mothers, both on the children and on and on you know their parents. Um, so, you know, just in terms of good health policy, <laughs> separating families like that is, is a terrible idea. Um, it also, and this is a, a more sort of clinical bioethics question, so not one that I typically work on, but something I've thought a lot about, is it puts the, the providers, the clinicians who are in those um, detention facilities in a, in a really bad spot, because again, they have these professional norms of providing the best care and trying to maximize the health of their patients. So they, they see how, you know, they're the the effect of these actions of separation separating families they can see the effects of that on their patients and um, again they're in that sort of distressing spot where where there are requirements of policy that conflict with how they see their jobs well thank you for being here to talk about these uh, issues I appreciate knowing that you're here at Upstate and that you're looking into things like this my guest has been Rachel Fabie she's an Upstate assistant professor in bioethics and public health and preventive medicine. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show, HealthLink on Air. Next on Upstate's HealthLink on Air, research on a rare neurological condition.
From Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York, I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. Because it has a medical school as part of its campus, Upstate Medical University has a variety of interesting research projects underway. And today I'm going to speak with a student who is investigating a rare neurologic condition that has shown up in a cluster of people living in the Dominican Republic near the Haitian border. HealthLink on Air welcomes Alfred or AJ Espinosa. Thank you for being here. Hey, Amber. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure and an honor to be here. Well, this rare neurological condition, pantothenate kinase-associated neurodegeneration, what is that? For short, let's just say PECAN. PECAN, okay. Um, I'll just give you a brief history on it. It was first described by two physicians, German physicians, in around 1922, uh, Dr. Halliburton and Dr. Spatz, and they described it as the Halliburton Spatz syndrome. Uh, but let's fast forward a little bit. And since they were both part of the Nazi regime, we decided to change the name to PECAN. So that's how we have the name today. Was it found in Germany? You said it was German uh, Not that it was physicians. found. It was just described. Or described. It was first okay. described in Germany. Okay. Uh, I believe it was a family of five. Huh. Family of nine, actually, with five affected. Okay. So they were the first to describe it, and they had the naming rights. But PECAN is part of a, a group of neurodegenerative disorders known as NBIA, which stands for Neurodegeneration with Brain Iron Accumulation. And as, as the name implies, there's a, an accumulation of iron in the brain. More of specific. iron, like... Uh... Yeah, yeah, the actual, like the metal, the, huh. uh, the, the element. And it, it accumulates in an area of the brain known as a, the basal ganglia. And the basal ganglia is a, is a group of structures, primarily cell bodies, uh, that is best known for its involvement in facilitating movement. And it's also found deep within the cerebral hemispheres. And there's one structure I want to focus on. It's from the basal ganglia. It's called the globus pallidus. Can I ask you something first? Of course. How does the iron, is, are people eating iron? To, I mean, what, what makes them get this iron accumulating in their brain? They have a mutation in their gene. Uh, it's a gene known as a PANK2 gene. And the biochemistry behind it is complex. But that mutation, what, what happens is that they have just a buildup of iron. So it's not that they're adding anything. It's it's iron that's already part of us that's uh, that just doesn't get dealt with by the body. Exactly. Properly. Normally okay. we have a way of processing or metabolizing that iron, but due to this faulty gene, they accumulate it. And the area they accumulate it in is in this basal ganglia. So how does a person with this disorder discover that they have the disorder? Like what sorts of symptoms might they feel? So at, it depends. There's two phenotypes. And phenotypes is um, observable characteristics of the disorder, right? The first we have, let's talk about classical. Classical is primarily seen when you're in the first decade of life, classical pecan, and you start falling at the age of five, you just start falling, you, ha uh, you start running, you fall, and, and your parents start to notice that you are just not as active and you're more clumsy than you should be. So they bring you in and a doctor takes an MRI and what he sees is a very interesting image. It's known as the eye of the tiger, uh, eye of the tiger sign, and you can, in the MRI, I see the buildup of iron in the basal ganglia. Huh. Uh, and it, it, it's, it's, it, it would be best to have a photo to show, right? But if, if you were looking at the surrounding structures around the basal ganglia, it looks like the face of the tiger. And the basal ganglia itself, with the iron deposits, it looks like the eye. And that's, how they, that's the primary way they use to diagnose pecan. Can a neurosurgeon go in and just remove the iron deposits? And it doesn't work. It doesn't like work that. that way? No, it doesn't. It would be amazing if it did. Um, these iron deposits, they, it's not completely understood why and how, but they, they, they tend to just cause, well, since the area in the basal ganglia that I want to focus on is the globus pallidus, and that's the area in pecan which shows iron accumulation. And, and the reason I want to speak about that is the globus pallidus, I want to refer to it as, as a break, simply because it, it supplies inhibitory signals, which counterbalance the excitatory signals that come from other areas in the brain. So is this the part of the brain that has to do with uh, physical movement? Exactly. It's actually fine-tunes. Well, it doesn't fine-tune, but it's involved with movement. Okay. Okay. And what happens is like this, the, the globus pallidus and its inhibitory signals, which counterbalance the excitatory signals, what that allows for is basically smooth, accurate, and voluntary movements. And when this signal is interrupted, this balance of signals is interrupted, as it is in pecan, due to the increased iron, that's when we see symptoms such as dystonia, and that's uh, dysphagia. a dystonia lack is, of muscle move? It's, it's basically sustained, uncontrollable muscle contractions. Okay. And they can be so unstable or contraction can be so strong that it actually changes your posture. So you can see some of these patients, you can see that they have, they're twisted, they're very rigid, they're spastic, they're just, they're tense. Uh, dysphagia and dysarthia are other symptoms. And dysphagia is difficulty swallowing, dysarthia is difficulty speaking. 
And the reason they have that is their tongue, normally in these patients, their tongue is protruding out. And since it's a neurodegenerative disorder, it affects muscles. One of the tongue is one of the biggest muscles in the body and it, it protrudes out. So they have trouble speaking and trouble swallowing. It's neurodegenerative. So does that mm-hmm. mean it gets worse over time? It does. And it's, okay. if you look at time lapses of these patients, you can see them when they were eight and they look beautiful kids. And you see a picture of them when they're like 15, 16. And from falling too much, their, their teeth have broken. They, their tongue is protruding out. They're very spastic. They're, they're rigid. And, and it's, it's very disheartening. So is there any treatment? Not currently. There are some, but they haven't been proven yet. They do iron chelators, and that's that's basically the only treatment they have right now. Iron chelator, is that a way to try to remove? It's exactly what that is, yeah. Okay. It's a way of trying to. But since there's not there, there's a barrier around your brain, the blood-brain barrier, and it's very hard to get drugs to pass through that barrier. So it's very hard to target the actual symptom. Um, and you don't want to you know, give someone iron chelators, too, because you can make them anemic if you know you don't really target the brain. This is Upstate's Health Link on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, and I'm talking with medical student A.J. Espinoza about his research on a rare neurologic condition, PKAN, PKAN. So talk to me about the epigenetics of PKAN. Epigenetics is a complex word, and, and I like to translate it. Well, a little translation of it is above genetics. And the scientific meaning is the study of changes in humans caused by modifications to gene expression rather than alterations to the genetic code itself. I understand that's a mouthful, but this is the best way I can explain it. Um, let's use a scenario. Let's say you have an identical twin, and at birth you two were separated. God forbid, but you two were separated. And you grew up in a nice suburban area with all the resources you needed to succeed, were well-fed, well-nourished. Your twin, on the other hand, your identical twin, grew up in the opposite spectrum of that. He did not have the resources to succeed, was not well-nourished, and not even well-loved. <laughs> um, some magical occurrence, you guys meet 50 years later, and there's a scientist there, and he decides to look at your genome. He takes some DNA sample sequences and looks at your genome. What he will see is that both your genomes are similar, or actually, they're both the same. However, the modifications to that genome are different for both of you. The way I can best explain that is, let's think of the genome as a paragraph. So you and your identical twin have the exact same paragraph with the same letters, the same words, However, the spaces and punctuation in your paragraph are different from that of your identical twin, which ultimately can affect the expression of or the interpretation of that paragraph. The same thing with your genome. The genome, the spaces and and punctuation in your genome compared to your twins are different, which causes a different expression of genes. So bringing that back to PCAN, what I'm trying to get to is that we have patients on opposite end of the spectrum when it comes to symptoms. Some of them, they both have PCAN. Some of them have very severe symptoms. Others have not so severe symptoms. Why is that and how? And that's the question we're asking there. That's another reason we're there. We believe that there's some kind of epigenetic interplay going on here. And to pursue this hy- uh, hypothesis, we are looking to perform a whole exome sequencing in hopes of looking for possible genetic interplay. So whole exome sequencing, is that a genetic it's, test? It's, it's basically looking at the paragraph. Okay. You know, and looking at where the punctuation and and the spaces are in your genome. And that's one of our goals is doing that and trying to understand why some have some very severe symptoms to the point where they're wheelchair bound while others can walk. And it's, it's very interesting. Now, what is the theory about why this disease is showing up in a cluster of people living in the Dominican Republic near the Haitian border? So that's actually the most interesting part. And one of the reasons we're there. I want to mention that the prevalence of PCAN, the, the, the amount of times you see it in the population, is about one in a million. That's worldwide. However, in this population, this remote town known as Barahona, Cabral Barahona, is about 15,000 people. And of those 15,000 people, we have 40 confirmed cases. And that's not taking into account the people that have not been diagnosed yet or those that may have the disorder but have yet to show any symptoms. So regardless, though, I also have to mention that in this population of 15,000, there's also 2,500 known carriers. So if we do a little quick statistical analysis, it's not that hard to come up with the fact that the chances of two people meeting up who are both carriers in this town are relatively high. And them having a child with PCAN is also pretty high. So this PCAN is um, 
autosomal recessive. Mm-hmm. Please correct me if I'm wrong, but no, that's right. so at conception, each sibling of an affected individual has 25% chance of being affected, 25% chance of not being affected, and 50% chance of being an asymptomatic carrier. That's correct. And yes. on this in, in this community, there's 2,500 known carriers. Mm-hmm. So the odds are, yeah. are higher. They are much higher. They are than the general population. And wow. It's um. I, we believe that the reason for the prevalence the, in heightened prevalence in this community is simply because a lot of people don't really move from this area. And some people have relations with third, fourth cousins that they may have not been aware that they were related. And when you have that kind of genetic interplay going on, it leads to things such as pecan. But aren't there other uh, communities in the world where people don't move very much? There and are. Do you see this popping up in... We don't. Huh. That's another reason we are there. Oh, no, it's... One of the things that just makes you wonder, and why we're there too, is we want we want to develop and deploy like a rapid, informative test for this population, something real time. An example I can give about that is what this test would do first, first and foremost, is it would educate those that are carriers and let them know about their genetic background and the possibilities of their children having pecan. Uh, a story I would like to share about is a, is a grandmother who came to us, and she had recently been there three months before on the trip that we were there prior. She was swabbed, we had her DNA sampled and her genome sequenced, and also that of her grandchild. When we came back, we came back to deliver the news that her grandchild was unaffected and he was not going to have pecan. Something that is indescribable. I've, I've heard of breaking the bad news, and I've never done it, but I got to break the good news and one of the best feelings I've had. However, she had to wait three months, and that's, that's a long time to wait with something when it comes to like pecan. So that, that time of waiting, we want to shorten that. We want to be able to do something while they're there, be able to tell them the results within hours, two hours, within the day, you know, and that's one of our main goals. So tell me how you got involved in this research as a, as a medical student at Upstate. So I took an opportunity and I seized it. I was in, in the hall here at Weisscott and I saw Dr. Middleton reading one of the abstracts or something that they hang on, on the wall. And I remember listening to him in the lectures last year, and I asked him, I, I said, I'm really interested in neurology. It, it fascinates me. It's something that I, I truly enjoy. How can I get involved? And he, and he told me, he's like, well, what do you know about pecan? I was like, uh, nothing. But I would like to get involved in any way I could. So from there, that, that just began the relationship between me and Dr. Middleton. And we began working together. And from there, he invited me to come to the DR. And it, it was... A humbling experience, being able to practice what I learned in the books, out on the field, uh, working with people who truly deserve. These these people are, they live in a pretty impoverished area, and it's tough. And just being able to work with them and supply what they want to know, is it's a humbling experience. Is it difficult to work on something that has, it, it's such a devastating diagnosis? Is it hard to work in that area? It's definitely tough. It's definitely a tough thing to see patients like that. You would imagine that having this type of disorder, you would be very, you know, distraught. You know, you would lose hope. That would be my opinion. But if you look at these patients, they're some of the happiest people you've ever seen. They they may be twisted, rigid, and spastic, but, you know, they're smiling. They're having a great time. And that's another thing I would actually like to mention. Thank you for mentioning it, is that, you know, even though you have all these symptoms, dystonia, dysphagia, dysarthia, these patients, like their their cognit their cognition is typically spared, so they can understand everything. They can think. They can you know feel. They can be empathetic, right? And I want to bring up the video "Tough as Iron" because I think it captivates a beautiful moment, in which there's a patient which I actually had the experience to meet, and she is there holding on to a, a picture of herself, graduating from an academic institution, and even though you can clearly see the symptoms on her, how she's twisted, how she's super just tight. Um, you can see just the gratitude and the appreciation, the happiness in her face from, you know, her academic achievement. And it's, it's, it's a beautiful thing to, to look at. And, I, and, I, and this scene is like a perfect reminder of a quote mentioned in the video about these patients. And it goes, they are prisoners in a body which refuses to obey their own commands. Well, that video, Tough as Iron, um, we'll put a link to it at the mm-hmm. healthlinkonair.org website where we'll be posting this interview so that people can click through to see it. Okay. Um, I appreciate you. you talking to me about this. It's very interesting that you're able to get involved in this during your educational career. 
My guest has been Upstate medical student A.J. Espinosa. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show, HealthLink on Air. And now, Deirdre Nealon, editor of Upstate Medical University's literary and visual arts journal, The Healing Muse, with this week's selection. Hippocrates was a Greek physician from the golden age of Pericles. Today, we know him as the man honored at medical school graduations when new physicians take the Hippocratic Oath. This promises to keep the welfare of the patient at the forefront of every doctor's practice. Poet Michael Salzman, a former chair of neurosurgery at the University of Maryland, reminds readers that Hippocrates emphasized caring for the patient, not merely treating him. Like Hippocrates, Salzman's speaker sees and seeks a commonality with his patient. Here is his short poem, The Little Hippocrates Knew. Dear patient, writer, sailor, though in your eyes I live my former life, as a tree gone bare in winter seems itself if still alive, or a woman round with child prepares to expel her possibilities, we are more alike than before, and no white coat of mine can attach humility or wear the badge of the perplexed enough. We too, captain and crew, on the same voyage. This has been Upstate's HealthLink on Air, brought to you each week by Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York. Next week on HealthLink on Air, a special episode devoted to early stage breast cancer with a medical oncologist, surgeon, radiation oncologist, and patient. If you missed any of today's show, listen on demand on our website at healthlinkonair.org or find a podcast in iTunes and other podcast sources by searching for one word, HealthLink. I'm Amber Smith, thanking you for listening. Thank you.